Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Classics Unlocked, opening up the stories behind classical music. Brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. In this program, everything we're going to hear will be based, in some way, on this. This delicate and unassuming little piece opens one of the most monumental works in the history of Western music. Its composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, called this tune an aria, and it does indeed have a certain vocal quality about it, what musicians call cantabile, a singing quality. The piece it opens was given an extraordinary title by its composer. Klavierübung bestehend in einer Aria mit verschiedenen Verrednerungen fürs Klavizembal mit zwei Manualen, denen Liebhabern zur Gemütsergetzung verfertigt von Johann Sebastian Bach. Keyboard exercise consisting of an Aria with diverse variations for harpsichord with two manuals, composed for connoisseurs for the refreshment of their spirits by Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach had very little of his music published during his lifetime, but the series of collections he called Klavierübung, or Klavierübung in modern German, were printed. And this aria with variations was the fourth and final issue in the Klavierübung series. 
But to call it a mere keyboard exercise is to suggest it's a technical work of no musical interest whatsoever, and that couldn't be further from the truth. In a typical sort of public self-deprecation, Bach here presents to the world one of his enduring and eternal musical monuments, worthy to take its place alongside the St. Matthew Passion, the Mass in B minor, the Art of Fugue and the Musical Offering. Today, we know it as the Goldberg Variations. It's a mighty series of 30 variations on that beautiful aria. This is the first. Before we look at the variations themselves, perhaps we should ask a rather obvious question. If these are the Goldberg variations, who was Goldberg? The popular name for these variations seems to originate in a dubious story related in the first biography of Bach. Written by Johann Nikolaus Forkel, this biography dates from the early 19th century, more than 50 years after Bach's death. Forkel had access to some of Bach's sons for information, but there are parts of the biography which more recent research has questioned. Forkel tells us that these variations were commissioned by the Russian ambassador to the court of Saxony, Hermann Karl von Kaiserlink, during a visit to Leipzig, where Bach lived. Kaiserlink was the patron and supporter of a brilliant young keyboard virtuoso, Johann Gottlieb Goldberg. He wanted to have a collection of pieces for Goldberg to play to him late at night when he was unable to sleep, and Bach responded by writing these 30 variations. The story also tells us that Kaiserlink was so pleased with the result that he rewarded the composer with a golden goblet filled with gold coins. Despite the doubt cast on this story in more recent times, the nickname has stuck, and Goldberg will be forever associated with this piece which may or may not have been commissioned for him to play. 
A few facts about Johann Goldberg himself, though, are beyond doubt. He was a child prodigy, and even though he would have only been about 14 when Forkel's story took place, other reports of his abilities indicate that even at that age he would have been able to play the variations, which are extremely challenging technically. It seems Goldberg studied with Bach in Leipzig for a short time in the 1740s. He was also quite a talented composer. In addition to two church cantatas dating from his time with Bach, there are quite a few instrumental works which can be attributed to him, including solo keyboard works, chamber music, and two harpsichord concertos. Sadly, Goldberg died of tuberculosis in 1756 at the age of only 29. The Goldberg Variations fascinated musicians and music lovers even before the Canadian pianist Glenn Gould released his first recording of the work in 1956. But from that point, the work rapidly accrued a sort of cult status. Gould himself developed cult status too, and his second recording of the work was released in 1982, shortly before his untimely death. Gould's recording, of course, was on the piano rather than the harpsichord. Bach's title indicates that the work was intended for a harpsichord with two manuals or keyboards, enabling a complex interplay of parts and sonorities. With some minor adjustments, it can be played perfectly well on the piano, which of course has only one keyboard, and it has been performed and recorded by pianists countless times. In this program, we're going to hear from four different versions of the work. The harpsichord version, from which we've heard extracts already, was released in 1963 and features the eminent English harpsichordist and conductor George Malcolm. By way of contrast, we'll also hear parts of a newly released piano version recorded by the Chinese pianist Lang Long. Later, I want to also share parts of two other versions, one for string trio and one for harp.
In all of Bach's music, we encounter one of the great minds in Western art. He had an uncanny ability to organize his musical material in ways which made large structures hang together. And often this coherence is experienced by the listener unconsciously. In other words, we can enjoy Bach's music on many levels without necessarily knowing the inner structures upon which it's based. Nevertheless, to discover there are deeper structures beneath the surface, so to speak, helps us to admire even more Bach's ability to organize and make sense of things. At first sight, the idea of 30 variations on a simple theme might seem daunting, but Bach knew that and gave this huge musical canvas a simple structure. So far, we've heard the aria and the first two variations. Now, from the third variation, Bach institutes a pattern which will take us almost to the end of the piece. Variation three is a canon, a round in common parlance, and the canons will reappear in every third variation from this point as landmarks in the structure. Variations three, six, nine, twelve, and so on. In this first canon, there are two parts in the treble which are identical, but the second part starts a bar after the first. And because the two parts in canon are identical in pitch, Bach calls it canon at the unison. In the bass, there's an independent accompanying part. We'll hear this variation in Long Lang's piano version.
It was George Malcolm who pointed out that from here on, each variation that follows a canon, variations 4, 7, 10, 13, and so on, is what he calls a genre piece. These suggest dances or take the form of an overture or a fugue. Variation 4, the genre piece following the first canon, suggests the jig or jig. Malcolm's view of the structure, the variations which precede the next canon, variations 5, 8, 11, 14, and so on, he calls arabesques. These are marked by rapid, ornate passage work and generally fast tempos. Variation 5 is the first of these arabesque movements. So, variations 3, 4 and 5 set up a pattern which will take us almost to the end of the Goldberg variations. Canon, genre piece, arabesque. Bach's love of mathematics is evident also if we take a step back and notice that this three-movement pattern occurs nine times over the entire work, nine being the square of three. Whether Bach was attaching any religious significance to the number three in this secular work referring to the Trinity, for example, takes us into the realm of conjecture and beyond the available evidence. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Goldberg variations also contain another structural pattern. In each of the canons, the composer set himself a different technical challenge. I said earlier that the first canon, Variation 3, is a canon at the unison, meaning that the two parts involved in the canon, or round, are identical in pitch. In each subsequent canon, Bach places the voices further and further apart in pitch. The second canon, Variation 6, is a canon at the second, meaning the second voice in the canon enters at a different pitch, one step higher than the first voice. This interval of a step is known as the interval of a second in music theory. In all other respects, the second voice is identical to the first, meaning it's still a canon. As with the earlier canon, the two canonic parts are in the treble with an independent bass line accompanying. Here it is on the harpsichord in George Malcolm's recording. Sadly, time doesn't allow us to hear every variation in this program. A performance of the entire Goldberg variations can take well over an hour if all of Bach's repeats are observed. Suffice to say, though, that every variation shows Bach stretching and adapting his raw material to utterly incredible ends, and yet it's all based on that innocent-sounding aria we heard at the start. Well, not exactly. Bach's score clearly labels the aria and the 30 variations, but the variations virtually never make use of the aria's melody. The Goldberg variations are variations not on the aria's tune, but on its bass line. Thus, it takes the form of what in other contexts we might call a chaconne or a passacaglia. 
Both these terms were used more or less interchangeably in the Baroque period when Bach lived to signify variations over a recurring baseline. Bach was a master at such composition, perhaps the most famous example being his massive Passacaglia and Fugue in C minor for organ. For this reason, some commentators see the aria itself as the first variation, which in a sense is true. But the aria also presents the bass line in its simplest form, and the 30 subsequent variations all clearly possess the same foundation. It's perhaps in the arabesque movements that we see Bach at his most dazzling and at his most technically demanding. The eighth variation is labelled by Bach as requiring two manuals. It's very challenging to play on the piano, with the musical material being perfectly divided between the two hands. The next group of three movements, variations 9, 10 and 11, start with a canon at the third. Here, the second voice of the two canonic parts, again in the treble, starts two steps, the interval known as a third, below the first voice. The accompanying bass is far more complex now as well. To hear it, we return to Long Long's recording.
The genre piece in this group is a fugetta, a small fugue. Here, Bach's brilliance makes it possible to write a piece in four independent parts, all based on the same melody, and yet still founded on the aria's original bassline. I said earlier in the program that we'd hear some extracts from two other versions of the Goldberg Variations, and it's from this point that I want to share them with you. The violinist and conductor Dmitry Sitkovetsky was born in Azerbaijan during the Soviet era, and he's been based in London since the late 1980s. He's highly respected internationally and has, in addition to playing and conducting, made a number of fascinating arrangements. Perhaps the most famous of these are his arrangements of the Goldberg Variations, one for string orchestra and the other for string trio, violin, viola and cello. The string trio arrangement has been widely performed and recorded and is regarded as a masterpiece of arrangement in that it remains steadfastly faithful to Bach's musical lines while adding an extra level of clarity and brilliance. We'll hear the next group of three variations in this arrangement, played by Julian Racklin, violin, Nabucco Imai, viola, and Mishomaisky, cello, in a recording released in 2006. In the canon at the fourth, variation 12, Bach sets himself another technical challenge. Here, as before, the two canonic voices, the violin and the viola in this arrangement, are supported by an independent bass line, the cello. But the added twist is that apart from entering a fourth apart, the second voice below the first, the second voice is in contrary motion. This means it's an upside-down version of the first canonic voice, where the first voice goes up, the second goes down, and vice versa. And Bach manages to make it all work over the aria's original bass line, which is implied in what the cello plays here. Thank you. 
The genre piece in this group takes the form of an ornate, florid aria. The right hand in the harpsichord version plays its solo line on one manual, while the two accompanying parts play on another manual. In the string trio version, Sitkovetsky stays with Bach's notes exactly, with the spotlight clearly on the violin playing the solo. The effect is not unlike the slow movement of one of Bach's concertos or sonatas, or one of the ornate instrumental solos in the cantatas. This ornate and elegant music could easily qualify as an arabesque, 
but the arabesque variation in this group of three, variation 14, is a virtuoso piece, which in the keyboard version requires incredible control and dexterity, as the right hand leaps multiple octaves over the busy left hand accompaniment, and vice versa. In the string trio arrangement, all three musicians are on their toes in order to keep the ensemble together. We've only now come to the halfway point in the Goldberg Variations, so time won't allow us to look in as much detail at the remainder of the piece. But it goes without saying that every variation is a stunning gem. I'll just pick out a few to share, and I'll also introduce at this point one more recording of the work in an arrangement for solo harp. The Welsh harpist Katrin Finch chose the Goldberg Variations for her Deutsche Grammophon recording debut in 2008. Playing her own transcription of the work, she reveals yet again that Bach seems impervious to arrangement, and, if undertaken with respect for the original, such arrangements can reveal, rather than obscure, the composer's art. Here is Katrin Finch's harp version of Variation 17, one of the virtuoso arabesque movements.
the most intriguing variations, and certainly the longest, is Variation 25, one of the genre pieces. In this case, it's a long, extended aria in the minor key, which takes us to a dark, expressive corner of the emotional landscape. It sounds particularly beautiful on the harp. This is how it opens. By the time we reach the start of the ninth group of variations, the canon in Variation 27, Bach's challenges have led him to write a canon at the ninth. That is, the second voice in the canon starts a ninth, or an octave and one note, away from the first. The following genre pieces are dazzling toccata, in which the hands cross at high speed, while the arabesque which follows is a muscular, powerful series of chords and rapid figurations up and down the keyboard. This brings us to the final variation, Variation 30, which finally breaks with the canon genre arabesque pattern. Bach called it a quadlibet, a Latin word which literally means what you please. A quadlibet generally refers to something light-hearted and fun in which pre-existing tunes are used or combined. Bach certainly does that here, finally relieving us of the ever-increasing seriousness and complexity of the variations in a little piece in four voices which makes use of a number of German folk songs. We'll hear it here in Long Long's recording.
At this point in Bach's score, the music ends. But there is one final instruction, aria da capo. This means that the initial aria is to be repeated at the end to remind us of how far we've come and to bring us, in a sense, back to earth. In a performance, this moment is very cathartic, very peaceful and very beautiful. We'll let Long Long's performance of the aria at the end of his recording bring our time together to a close. As I said earlier, I've omitted so much of the glorious detail in the Goldberg variations in this program, but I hope you've been inspired to explore this magical work further in whatever guise you prefer. Long Long's recording of the Goldberg variations on the piano was released in 2020 on Deutsche Grammophon, while George Malcolm's classic harpsichord recording from 1963 is available on an Eloquence Classics reissue. The Julian Racklin Nobuko Imai Mishamaisky recording of Dmitry Sitkovetsky's Arrangement for String Trio was released by Deutsche Grammophon in 2006, while the same label also released the solo harp version featuring Katrin Finch in 2008. Technical production for Classics Unlocked is in the calm and capable hands of Tom Ford, and I'm Graham Abbott. Happy listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.